This is Remote Ruby. Have you any remote idea to the meaning of the word? What's up? Morning. Yeah, you do look like you just woke up. <laughs> I did you just do. wake up. You've been offline. <laughs> been worried. I woke up this morning and I was like, it's not the day. It's just not the day. And so mm-hmm. I was like, I need to wake up. I need to get coffee. I need my meds to kick in. And I just woke up again. That's how the day's going. <laughs> I don't know. You were up. Would have been six o'clock your time. Firing some pretty hefty shit at me over Slack about basketball. I woke up on time-ish. You seemed yeah. like you were firing on all cylinders this morning. Well, that's because I had prepared all that the night before. I had a okay. document. I had all these tweets I wanted to send you. I had like a list of all the shit I wanted to talk. I was ready. It's weird because I was actually really excited for your team to get such me a superstar. Too. And then you were like, oh, let's see how I could make Jason feel horrible about this. And you did it's, a wonderful job. It's my only way of connecting with you. So I'm just <laughs> trying out here. It's because of that huge age gap. Yeah, we don't really connect. So I'm trying to find someone to bond with. (laughs) What about you, Chris? What's up? Oh, you know, it's another week. Old Jackson gets to start daycare next week. So he's been crying a lot and teething and growing up, getting big. But I don't know. Feels like a blur these days. Get up, get him ready for the day and then work all day and then go pick him up and rinse and repeat. I have nothing witty to shoot back at that. So, Well, this week we've got Ken Collins with us. So welcome. You want to introduce yourself? I feel like a lot of people will know you from Lambie, but please give us the intro. Yeah, thanks, Chris. And it's good to meet you, Andrew and Jason. So my name is Ken Collins. I work at Custom Inc., principal engineer and cloud architect. You can find me on most things from GitHub to Twitter as meta skills, maybe even a little bit of Xbox, although I'm now a PC gamer and I've fully switched to mouse and keyboard. I'm taking a big bow. Thank you. <laughs> and I've been in the Ruby community for a long time. It was my first programming language when I started to learn to code many, many years ago, which is probably 15 right about now. And always found Ruby the best language, but I've learned lots of others and done things in Rust and had a lot of fun with JavaScript. I think we all had and try to do as much as I can for as much any employer I work for out in the open and stuff. So I enjoy a lot of open source and gift enough to have been sort of invited to Microsoft for the open source with Ruby and Python. I'm now an AWS serverless hero and represent a lot of the Ruby stuff there. So all in all, that's about what I do. Other than help my t-shirts. A lot of stuff. You just listed a ton of accomplishments, right? But I stopped listening after you said one thing. Jason and Chris, (laughs) When y'all signed me to this podcast, there was one simulation as that no PC gamers. I signed you. <laughs> Why am I here now? Yeah. We got to speak to your agent now. <laughs> yeah, no, it's console game for life. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I heard that. And I was like, PC gamer intensified. I, yeah, you died inside. I watched it happen. Because I died literally to them last night in Warzone. I'm still tweaking. Okay. All right. Well, let's do it. That's all I play now, right? So, my, Oh, perfect. Yeah. That's all I play now. I'll get your gamer tag. Are, are, are you right. sitting like with your controller in your lap? Controller <laughs> in lap, yes. Your legs crossed, right? Okay. Yeah, I do have the legs crossed though. <laughs> tongue out too. If I'm really locked in and focusing, my mouth is open. My tongue is out. I get jump scared too much. I would bite mine off if I did that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to the Ruby. Sorry. Yeah, I was going to say real quick, speaking of custom ink, Colin Gilbert made me a little onesie that says Go Rails and Sun on it. And he used custom ink to make that and it turned out perfect. But I think we had him in it like once or twice and then he's already grown out of it. And I was like, man, we're just going to have to keep making different sizes for That's him. That's how we get you. Keep coming yeah, back. Just one from the smallest size, just every size up, just order one of each. <laughs> I guess a good place to start is like custom t-shirt and a printing company like that would maybe expect them to have a bunch of cool technology and stuff behind yeah. it. But I can tell there already is like Lambie and I'm sure other things as well. Mm-hmm. But I'd love to hear how Lambie came to be, what kind of stuff you guys build and the tech behind that stuff. Because you think of it as, oh, we print stuff on clothing, but actually there's a lot more to it, I'm sure. 
Yeah. So Custom Inc., I think, is in about the 22nd year in business. They've been using Ruby for many of those, most. We were probably one of the first bigger companies to come out with public websites on Rails and using that technology, I think, right up in the, around Rails 1.0. So if you can imagine a company that's been using Rails for that long, there is a lot of code and things going on in the company. And I've had AWS people say Custom Make is the AWS of t-shirts, right? And it's not just the e-commerce and taking of the orders. It's the huge amount of logistics that have to get involved. It may be printed at off-site printers. It may be printed at in-house production facilities. We do sort of just-in-time product allocation. So everything has to come together from a huge logistical point. These are all applications mostly running on Rails. That is probably quite a few different things. Is a lot of it individual services? Are there some monolithic things in there? Like, obviously, AWS Lambda is a specialty of yours. I'm sure there's some interesting there, too. Yeah, I think the uh, story of applications is probably like a lot of other companies, right? We're not as big as GitHub, but you would imagine or Twitter that we'd start off with a large application and we'd learn to break those up in certain ways. The concept I always liked is we let the ley lines of the business success establish where the domain applications need to be. So we sort of have this big monolith. We've tried doing microservices first in some business units, and that just doesn't work. So we always like to build first and fast the bigger things and then break stuff up. The Rails thing on Lambda came into play when it was, I think the thing that I really wanted to get involved with about two or three years ago, I was like, okay, I think it was probably about three years ago. I just wanted to get good at the cloud. If you were to ask me, Ken, like, are you good with AWS? I'd be like, I got an S3 bucket. Yo, dog, I'm dope. I got it, right? Like, I, I know <laughs> AWS. I think a lot of people are in that same boat. Yeah. <laughs> got and, my cores configuration set up. Yeah, we're great. I can type it in the CLI. <laughs> What else do I need to do? Exactly. <laughs> you know, but once I started looking at it and learning, and Lambda was, I think it came out in about 2014. And I thought of it as sort of like microservices, which I normally have knee-jerk reactions towards as the aforementioned business stuff that we had talked about. And eventually I got to the point to where I really wanted to learn Lambda and how it worked. And then I just wanted to sort of see how far I could take it and what it was and how it worked. And eventually I got to this point to where I saw where AWS had these example projects that included Express and how Express could run inside of Lambda. And then once I saw that, I was like, wait a minute, if an Express app can run it in Lambda, then a Rails app could. And then that's just sort of exploded out to what we have today. And just from a high level at Custom Inc., you know, not everything's on Lambda just parts of things. We use it to innovate a little bit faster or hyper-optimize some parts of our workloads. Yeah, it all really just kind of started on what I can put into this thing. And in a way that's sort of empathetic to like where the technology may head, right? I don't know where Lambda was going, but it certainly has progressed to where a place I really love it. And I keep finding things where it's just right for folks. When Lambda started, didn't it just support JavaScript and pretty minimal runtime options or whatever? How did that evolve? At some point, they released a Ruby 2.51. And then it starts off where like you just have to put, it was called the zip packaging format, which you can still use today. But now Lambda also supports the OCI container format for as a packaging format. And the zip, you're limited to 250 megabytes. You can imagine getting a Rails app on there meant you probably had to clean some of the bundle gem cache out to make sure it would fit. But it did modest size Rails application would easily fit with 250 megabytes. And then at some point when they adopted containers, then that meant that you could do any container, right? So the provided runtimes that AWS always had, you know, it was always Python, maybe the Node one, then they let Ruby. But now with the OCI packaging format, you can pretty much just provide your own Docker image and just hit the ground running with anything. And that could be Amazon Linux, it could be Ubuntu, as long as it's an OCI compatible format. Could you, for anybody that doesn't know, like explain what the OCI format is? It's like kind of similar to what you get when you build a Heroku Rails image or whatever. It's building a container of sorts that you can install whatever you need on it, but it packages that up. And Yeah, my expertise would be a Docker file. It's a Docker image, right? I think is the right term. Once it's run into production, it becomes a container. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Because I think they started a little rudimentary and was like, here's a specific version of Ruby, but the first question everybody's going to be like is, 
what about Ruby 2.4 and 2.6 and 2.7 mm-hmm. and 3? And so I'm sure they kind of realized pretty early on, like providing the language is probably a little too much maintenance on their end and giving the developers the freedom to like, here, we'll make our own image with our own stuff in it. And then they don't have to care anymore. That's yeah. probably uh, a learning they had early on, I assume. Yeah, I think so. And like to this day, the only Amazon Linux, the highest one is, I think, Ruby 2.7. Yeah, it is. And I have beef about that. Yeah. I've emailed their support asking about that. Like, hey, y'all want to think about three? As a hero, I get to see a little bit of insight on what's happening. And I can't say what's happening, but things are happening all the time. They're so, working on it. Yeah. 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 Andrew, did you not hear back from Jeff Bezos when you wrote him? Well, I did, but I don't know if he's so busy. It's hard to get a straight answer. You just gave you a no. That was he it. He keeps sending me to his CEO <laughs> and I'm like, Jeff, we've known each other for this long and you're really going to do this to me like that, bro? <laughs> so I think it would probably be helpful for people to understand when you've got Lambda, how that works compared to deploying to a traditional server or dyno or whatever, because you have to route things through the API gateway, right? Is that correct? I um, haven't really used Lambda too much myself, so... Yeah. If these are newbie questions, then that's because I am a newbie. (laughs) The best questions. Less than a year ago, Lambda released what are called function URLs. So think of it as a free API gateway that's built into the Lambda service, which is nice. You'll have API gateway, HTTP API, and then the older REST API. And when you're using these things with Express or Flask or Rails, you're really just using it as a proxy. Just think of it as Nginx, right? It's just passing things Mm. through to it. There's a lot of cloud-native developers that like these features that are in these products. You can do sort of VTL transforms. You could hook API Gateway directly up to other services, have it dump into DynamoDB, all sorts of things. But with Rails, you're really just using it as a free web proxy or as a costly web proxy. And function URLs are now a free web proxy for your HTTP-based Lambda. Gotcha. So then from there... Things come into, maybe you can explain the mm-hmm. the sort of whole process like end to end. A request comes in, what yeah. happens, how does it get to Rails? And then also you have not a known size of dynos running. You have mm-hmm. the ability to spin up infinite ones or whatever. So then your database is also affected by that for connection limits and stuff. So maybe you can explain that whole process like kind of end to end there. And then let's talk a little bit about like how those containers too can be used for other things like an event-driven architectures because you don't have to stop at the HTTP stuff. So typically, let's oh, say yeah. a web request comes in, what will happen is API Gateway or the function URL will receive the event. It'll convert it to some form of a hash or an object that gets sent down to the Lambda handler. The Lambda gem that I authored is basically a rack adapter. If you were to go to the GitHub rack page and look at their servers, you would actually see Lambie listed as a rack web server of source. And I'm incredibly proud of this piece of software because all it really does is it takes one hash and it converts it to another. The best software is the simplest, and it simply takes the HTTP event that comes in through the sort of proprietary format of either API Gateway, REST HPI, or function URLs, which look very similar, takes that hash or that object and converts it into a rack object, and then sends it right directly to the application. So once the container boots up, your Rails application is loaded. And all you need to do is just give it an entry point. And the entry point is for Rails, that's just config environment. So imagine like you're just loading a console up and you're just, it's just sending your application these events right at rack. So one of the cool things with Rails and Lambda is that you can think of it as a dyno. In a dyno, it's single process. It can facilitate one web request. And only a few instances of a Lambda function can do a lot of work. If you need to scale up, we've seen some of our functions scale up to a couple hundred, sometimes five, 600 instances of a concurrent Lambda function. Doesn't hurt our database at all. The good thing I've always liked to compare Lambda, you know that analogy when you talk about like your life priorities and you like, you fill the glass up with stones and then pebbles and then sand. You always get the stones first. Lambda sand. You're not gonna beat the utilization of how it can scale up and down It can scale up really fast. It can scale down fast. So I love it, right? If you're looking for cost optimization, it's probably the best compute service out there. Wow. I remember playing quite a few years ago and like having to, maybe it was the function thing where you kind of mapped one URL to like 
hey, call this JavaScript function or something and having to manage that like individually or something. And it was like, I don't know how you would get Rails to do that otherwise. It's a lot more generic actually, but you can have it, eh, just give it to the Rails app and it's going to have all this other stuff available, but it's only going to process that one request that came through there. Mm-hmm. And then I assume that Lambda knows that request is finished, so that's free for the next request. And yeah. it's just going to keep it running until there's downtime and it just auto-scales it down whenever it sees like there hasn't been a request for 10 seconds or 30 seconds or whatever the time limit is. And it just says, okay, you can shut down now and we'll bring you back later if we need you. And it's all a mystery. It could be up for five minutes. It could be up for 20 minutes. I've seen one last an hour before. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it's all kind of there. You don't have to worry about it. That's the reason why you use it, because you don't have to even think about those things. We use Kubernetes a lot at Custom Inc. And I've done my fair amount of Kubernetes learning. I would rather not. <laughs> yeah. And how would you say they compare? Like, are there limitations that you can actually not do things in Lambda that you could do in Kubernetes easier? Or Absolutely, is it yeah. one where you're like, in general, you know, I would say start with one or the other? And that line's going to move all the time, right? So it used to be people would say, well, I really need ARM processing. And that wasn't available in Lambda at one time. And I really needed it for some machine learning models or some other stuff. But now they have that. Used to be that the max amount of CPU that you could request for was like one or two. Now it's up to 10, I think it's six virtual CPUs and up to 10 gigabytes of storage and 10 gigabytes of memory. That's quite Quite a lot. lot. That's cool. What about things like background jobs and cron jobs and how do those fit in? I think if you're familiar with Kubernetes, it has similar concepts to that, but AWS or Lambda feels like maybe that's more of a mystery and how you wire those things up. You know, as a serverless hero, one of the things that sort of like my interests fit into are what are called application integration. So Lambda, EventBridge, there's a couple other sort of technologies that roll up into it, roll up under the sort of the application integration sort of umbrella of AWS. And the things that fascinate me the most are what is the code that I cannot write or how can I imagine these integrations? So background jobs are typically like integrations, right? You're, for a typical Rails app, you don't have to stand up a Redis cluster or something like that, right? Your jobs will go into it. You'll have to spawn another sort of like a same Docker image or a container that will have to pick some way to start up and pull. The Sidekick gem includes all that stuff inside of it. Let's say if you used Active Job with SQS, you might use the Sure You Can gem, right? And you're going to have this long running polling process, whether there's jobs there or not. <laughs> right? Yeah, um, right. It's resources that are just sitting around waiting for things to happen, but right. doesn't necessarily need to exist if you can have like the Lambda mechanism of event comes in from AWS internally is doing the polling thing or sort of like running the long running service in the background. You don't even know it exists. Mm-hmm. They just tell you, hey, something, something happened, do. go do work. These are not coupled to Lambda running Rails on Lambda, but I wrote one gem that's called Lambda Kick, which is like play on the sidekick. And what it does is it's technically a SQS-backed active job adapter. It 100% mimics the exponential backoff and all the features that Sidekick offers, but it does it with SQS. And there's a contract when you like you type out a couple lines of CloudFormation. So you have your Rails Lambda project and you type out a couple and it's event-based, right? So you hook up the events to function URLs. You add a few more lines of YAML that say, hey, also with this Docker container image, take events from SQS. And then it stands up all the glueware in between things. It gives you little knobs and dials for the jury drive policy, for DLQs, for timeout visibilities and all that sort of stuff. You don't have to manage that software, that polling infrastructure. That's all managed for you from the async handlers down to the synchronously invoking your Lambda. Oh, wow. That's cool. Whether US East 1 is down or you forgot to add a configuration file, everyone has an outage from time to time. When your next outage occurs, transparency is critical. The difference between a minor annoyance that people soon forget and a fiasco that creates sustained resentment is in how you communicate. That's why you need Honey Badger. HoneyBadger will be a crucial component of your incident response plan with their uptime monitoring service that now has an exciting new feature, public status pages. 
Create a new status page with custom domains, branding, and more. Don't let Twitter be the only way your users can find out if your app is down. Sign up for Honey Badger to improve your instant response with a shiny new status page that you will be proud to show your users. Visit honeybadger.io and start giving your users a better experience today and let them know Remote Ruby sent you. Thanks to Honey Badger for their continued support of Remote Ruby. What are DLQs? What was the other one that you said before that? SQS. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the most daunting thing about all this is like, there's so many different things and acronyms and it feels like a hard transition just to like keep it all in your head and like, why do we need these things and what do they do? And then in a way, maybe you have a good way of managing this, but when you're in your Rails app, you have your routes file, you know, the server's running and requests will come in and do these things, but it feels like you've got to have the YAML configuration so that this triggers that and whatever. Mm-hmm. It feels hard to wrap your head around like where are all these connections being made and the events being sent to the right place and whatever. The do you have a too, good way like, of managing that? Well, the way I like to manage it is just not have to do it, right? Like I'd rather learn a few lines of cloud formation and just connect the strings, right, of sort, and have AWS manage that stuff. I think people often forget when you come in out of things from a Heroku world, right? Heroku, it's, it's easy to maybe forget that there's a lot of connective tissue there that's sort of handled for you. But as you sort of take responsibility for your own operations and, and do things, right, there's only going to be a few sort of platforms that kind of maintain that level of uh, abstraction. But if you can use AWS and if you can use the cloud to sort of take that abstraction for you and just build a little bit of software, I'd rather do that as well. So it's almost like building your own platform as a service. When you do things like run sidekick jobs through Kubernetes, you kind of have to monitor that process, right? You have to put monitoring just to make sure that process is running. You have to put alarms to make sure that it doesn't back up and stuff like that. And all that stuff is just built into AWS and you kind of get a lot of it for free. And then other parts of it, you have to sort of software engineer for it. So for example, the Lambda Kit gem will publish metrics. So we all know how like you could tap into the active support notification system and you implement mm-hmm. like a block and you can take these sort of like little events and do things with a new relic. Other companies, they'll use it for instrumenting all these things. I hooked up the Lambda Kick gem to publish what's called AWS CloudWatch embedded log formats, which is basically a JSON payload that goes to the logs that gets automatically ingested on your behalf and turns it into high cardinality data sets like StatsD for you automatically. So then you can alarm based on that. Like you can watch what's going on with SQS and the Lambda Kick gem how many jobs are running, what they're running, what they're doing, in way more detail than you probably could with Sidekick. I, don't, I think I have Sidekick Pro. Like, I've just never seen really good data that says what's happening, right? And how can I alarm off of those things? And this stuff is just built into the cloud, and it's so easy to tap into when you just, you know, once you get that little nudge in there, and you have a Rails app running on Lambda, then you're like, oh, I can use this. And there is some connected tissue. I've written a lot of it, but once it's there, it's kind of magical again. Is cloud formation something that, like, if you're going to get into this, something you should definitely learn as one of the starting things or maybe something that comes in later is more useful? Or I say everybody needs to take their context and learn the tools they like to learn, right? I like to keep things simple. And cloud formation, I can do a lot with a few lines of YAML. Uh, some people like CDK and, and authoring all of the resources with JavaScript first. But at the end of the day, that's going to generate cloud formation for you under the hood. So I just kind of cut to the chase. And I find if any of my Rails projects have more than maybe 100 lines of YAML, I've never really seen it get that complex. So I'd rather write a few okay. lines of YAML. Yeah. But people are different, right? And I think that's I think that's fine. So CDK is kind of a JavaScript API to generate that stuff? Or what is yeah, that? It's called the Cloud Development Toolkit. And it's basically a... TypeScript system for declaring your resources in JavaScript, and then you run like a CDK build in a synth, and it will stand up. It's kind of like Terraform, but JavaScript. But under the hood, it's really sort of driving things with CloudFormation under the hood anyway. Gotcha. So I know that Amazon has several different database options. There's Aurora and DynamoDB and RDS. Most people are probably familiar with running their Postgres server and just having that with a number of connections open. Do you have to use, what is it, Aurora is their serverless database, is that right? Yeah, you don't have to use, you can use any database you want, and that database can be wherever you want, just like Heroku. It doesn't have to be an AWS Rails. It used to be back in the day when I first started working with Lambda, things like packaging the MySQL gem were hard because you'd have to 
compile that for the Amazon Linux thing. You'd have to put it in a special place in the zip file. Containers, everything's open, right? You just do a yum or apt install, move on with your day and just send it down with the container. So it used to be back in the day, I would recommend like, hey, try to use maybe DynamoDB for, you know, active record. But Rails on Lambda, it can be anything. And I can even tell you a little story of how we're sort of migrating away from AMQP and we've taken some of our Kubernetes projects and when they're responding to events now, the exact same Docker image that we're running on Kubernetes is running on AWS Lambda and responding to events. Oh, well, that's so like, cool. If that doesn't tell you, right, it doesn't matter where you put this OCI image, it's just going to work the same way. So any downstream resource, whether it be a database or anything, or talking to HTTP or NAT and out of your VP, C, whatever, it's the same thing. Are there benefits to using like the, and I guess maybe you could explain the difference between Aurora and Dynamo and RDS. Like RDS will actually run Postgres or yeah. MySQL or whatever, but then some of them aren't Postgres compatible or something, if I remember right. I think Could you explain the differences? Like when Aurora Serverless came out, it was supposed to be a scale to zero, right? Like once a database tells me it can scale to zero, then I become really interested. I don't think Aurora Serverless V2 can do that yet. So the way I've sort of partitioned it off in my brain, and again, this is weird because I used to be an active record adapter author for SQL Server. I kind of like just to ignore them. I hate them, right? Like I only wrote the adapter auth stuff just so I could not deal with it anymore. If your business is in AWS, you're using RDS, whether you're using Aurora, whether you're using RDS proper, whether it's Oracle, SQL Server, Postgres, whatever, that's your database. You can access it. I'm kind of getting a little interested in looking at other things like planet scale. You can use Rails and Lambda with really big workloads like we do at Custom A. But I really want people that have sort of like this entrepreneurship and these smaller applications that are running on Heroku to have a really good spot to land. And if you're really concerned about your dollars and cents, I don't think Aurora is a really good place to save you money. It's pretty costly. I tried moving my Rails hobby app over and I still had to pay like, it's not expensive, but it was like $30 a month. And that was with Aurora serverless. Maybe, no, it's probably 75. It was way more than Heroku. And a lot of that was basically the database running. And then of course the application natting out through the VPC because the NAT gateway gets you all the time. How's that? It charges you for Ca- egress from traffic the costs. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So if your application has to make API calls to the internet. That makes sense. And then Aurora's promise is like it's database that will scale up like your serverless application, or I can't remember the difference. I am not completely up to date on all of the Aurora offerings. And then I don't even remember. It was DynamoDB like a MongoDB Yes. That one we've done before. We've used Dynamo for a a few projects, maybe even some Rails projects. And that's really cool, right? Like it has so many good features. Like one of the cool things that I liked about it was, is you can actually put a TTL on records. So you can kind of treat it like a cache in a weird way too, where you can expire things automatically. Some of the things that custom make, we've stored in S3 buckets, like miniature blobs. Like there's some, we started off with MySQL. We were storing something in MySQL that was about six or eight K. If that grew out of MySQL, then we put it into S3. But now we're finding out it's much easier. Like we can put those in DynamoDB instead. We can get the sub-millisecond latency access request patterns. And it's actually easier to replicate and run reports on if you needed to. S3, you'd have to use, you know, we're called inventory reports and batch operations and stuff. So like DynamoDB is a great technology. I haven't used any Mongo or document kind of databases for a long time. And I think it just comes down to like learning the reasons why it works differently and the benefit and taking advantage of those benefits. Cause I remember like, Oh, this is cool. But if I store comments and I have to put the user on each of these comments or whatever, if they change their name in a relational database who join it. And if they update their name, then it's always up to date and little things like that are like, okay, now how do I restructure my understanding of this and how I would model things in that or just like use it for different reasons there or whatever like set it up differently on purpose i still love the relational databases and i've not found at least for a lot of the things that i've had to do or at least witness in the spheres that i'm in really good uses for dynamo because like you really have to think about your schema and your access patterns up front with relational you can kind of solve all that stuff later on funny story when i was in college learning programming the first actual not Java, not Python, like on the back. And the first thing they were like, okay, we're going to have you 
build a Node.js application. And if you want extra credit, you can add React onto it. And part of that project was using MongoDB. That was the first database I ever used in earnest. And so I didn't even know that it was different until I got a few more years or and got out of college. And I'm like, wait, MongoDB and at Mongo, that was the time where MongoDB exploded in growth. And so oh, yeah. I thought when I was first starting out that people, everyone was using Mongo and that's what everyone was doing. Yeah, what was How it? Like, the just had that big talk at Rails Conference where they wrote that. Like, we all thought everybody was just going to be on MongoDB at some point. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny how things change. So jumping back to Lambda stuff, what are things that the average person wouldn't think about that are benefits or even rough edges of running your application? Or if I'm considering moving the GoRails website over there, what changes would I have to make? What things would we have to like rethink about how we would approach it to like move an application from a traditional server thing to serverless. Where I'd like that to be is in a different place than where it is now. There's a website that we have. It's called lambi.customatetech.com. And it's redid it recently. It's sort of the new product website. Built it on DocuSource. Amazing little React framework for building documentation. It's like a you ever bought a car and then you start driving the car around and you see everybody else have the same car. I think <laughs> once I got familiar with DocuSource, I'm like, oh, the entire internet is DocuSource and I didn't even know it. <laughs> so it's a great little documentation website and we cover things and there's a little quick start guide that says, here's how you could get a Rails application on Rails 3.2. I'm going to update it in a couple of days. So by the time this podcast comes out, you'll be able to get a Rails 7 application on Ruby 3.2 on ARM processors up into AWS Lambda within several minutes or so. The hard thing about that is knowing that, like, so I told you previously, where like literally we could take any of our Kubernetes things and plug them right up to AWS Lambda. So that knowledge came after a couple of iterations of how Lambda works and what you actually need inside of your project to get this done. So now is probably the best time to say, hey, I, want, I would like to move an application over. And the way I would do it is say, use the quick start, run that little project, and then take a look at the files that we use at the root of the project to sort of augment things. And it's really just going to be a SAM template file. And then much of the other stuff is just CICD. And that's portable. You can reimagine that any way you want to. Some people want to deploy from their laptop. Eh. Some people want to deploy from GitHub Actions or CircleCI. I've just added a CircleCI one the other day. But really, that's not what Lambie is. That's just helping people understand good CICD practices and how to deploy that stuff. Basically, you just need a CloudFormation file and a deploy command and you're done. So the cookie cutter project will generate a new Rails app with the configuration stuff. Yeah. Do you have like an example repo that's already run that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm going to have to check this out because this looks like a lot of fun. Because one of the things that I know that the Laravel community has, and Taylor Otwell actually modified Laravel at one point purely to run on Lambda. And I don't know what exactly he changed, but they've got a couple services, Forge and Envoyer, which mm -hmm. can deploy your Laravel apps directly to a VPC somewhere or VPS somewhere. But then Vapor is their tool for deploying to Lambda, which has been like for the Laravel community, like a massive tool just to have officially from the authors of Laravel that, hey, if you want to run your apps on serverless, like we give you all the tools, you can kind of click a button to deploy it and we'll set up your databases and whatever else. And it is a really encouraging thing for anybody using Laravel. Yeah, this scales and we can just slap it on Lambda and trust the author to like take care of stuff. So it would be awesome to have similar things. And Lamby is like the foundations of getting the equivalent of Laravel vapor in Rails land. Yeah, we'll have to do a reverse podcast here because I've wanted to learn more about this stuff. I have a counterpart in the AWS Heroes that does ref PHP, which gets PHP on Lambda. And I don't know what the overlap is between these because this is ignorance on my part. Interesting. When, when you say Laravel, I just think PHP. Is that right or wrong? Laravel is a PHP framework like Rails in PHP. So it's pretty much the Rails framework equivalent. Okay. They have a bunch of stuff. Same thing. They've got background jobs and authentication and payments and 
all these other like official things in the framework that you can use. But their company, Laravel, that builds the open source framework runs Spark, which is like a business template and Mm -hmm. Envoyer and Forge and a bunch of little things like that. And Vapor was one of them. And I remember watching him with his original release of it, like the videos, like you click deploy and it uploads this zip file to Lambda. And I was like, I wonder what's in that zip file. So now (laughs) it is one where we can see how the sausage is made on the Rails side of things too. Taylor is the first person I heard of running an app on Lambda from. He did a podcast explaining that. And I was like, I had no idea. A lot of my original cloud and Lambda knowledge came from him explaining it. Who's this? Taylor Taylor Otwell, the creator of Laravel. Yeah, because I fiddled with Lambda a long time ago, but it was going through one of the tutorials where you like go through the UI and you like fill out a function and map it to a URL or whatever. But I was like, yeah, but all my stuff's already mapped in Rails and how do I get that to connect up automatically? And they are doing pretty much what you're describing for all this too, uh, I assume. And I mean, honestly, I have all the makings to make my own platform service. I really do. I should probably just put it together. (laughs) Not, of course, like you need another massive project, but, you know. I've got the domain. Rails Vapor. (laughs) Yeah, it is a super cool thing. And I would love to see that in Rails as well. You might have to make that happen. Are there any like gotchas? I know people were talking about Rails is slow to boot and things. I think that used to be an issue where like connecting your Lambda to a VPC was slow. I remember reading about this on Laravel Vapor actually, because they were like, yeah, right now we like don't allow you to use RDS because you have to connect it to a VPC and it's too slow or something. and I assume a lot of those things are kind of solved now. Yep. So the VPC one was a really good one, and it's really solved very well now. What they'll actually do is you don't have the performance penalty for it, and you don't even have to manage your IP addresses anymore. They basically put it all behind a NAT, a managed NAT for you. So even if you scale the the bejesus out of the thing, you're not chewing through your IP addresses. That's all managed for you, and there's no cold start for it at all. Oh, wow does have its own start, right? So like if you have an Express app, it's going to be more than just a little JavaScript handler. Same thing for Ruby to Rails. I think most Rails apps boot in about two to three seconds. So it could be a little bit slower depending upon their network connections to the database. But there was a lot of fear around justified, right? Like would this cold start be an issue? Because I think a lot of people thought cold starts were for each request. And then the question is, is how many requests are you servicing and what's the percentile that those happen in? So, that like, if you were to, cold starts. Yeah, if you were to look at your yeah. metrics, you can go find the outliers. You can go find the cold starts. But you know the product catalog at Custom Inc. Go play around on it. Bet you you will never feel a cold start whatsoever. Somebody out there probably does. But when I look at the data, it's outside of P ninety nine. So I'm not worried about it. I've never seen any of our services. If it's within the P fifty, then fine. It's doing what it should do. It's going to sleep <laughs> essentially. Mm-hmm. But in any small or modest app, especially the larger ones, it goes well past P99. So we don't even look at it. At which, like, if you were auto-scaling on Heroku, it would be basically the same situation. You would have request you know? queuing. You're so basically you would... trading cold starts for request queuing. And at the end of the day, it's still going to be the same thing to the customer. Yeah, just going to have a slower first request and it's basically right. the same experience. They won't be, like, cut off with a 500 error or anything like They'll just have a slow returning request, and that's okay. If it's only a very small fraction of the time, well, that's the nature of building something without excess capacity. You're not overpaying for all of that, where every user would always get the same experience. That's impossible to probably afford, especially if you have very spiky traffic and stuff. Who doesn't? That is very common, and especially around if you're doing any Black Friday sales and things like that, holidays are crazy. I'm trying to think of what's left, right? So if that stuff is solved, what is the rough edge? Feels like from last time I looked in, a lot of the main concerns that I remember hearing about have been solved, which is exciting, very exciting. Yeah, I think the hardest thing is just learning... There are no passes out there that say, like, 
the stuff with Laravel that sort of solved that for you, right? I tried it with the Lambda starters to get people enough to go on. If you've never done deploy pipelines before, that's probably hard for you to wrap your head around if you need to make adjustments and changes to it. It's not like Heroku where the build pack is going to sort of do a lot of the work for you in building your container or image. But that aside, I look in the rearview mirror and Heroku was amazing, but we've all probably had to, <laughs> we're trying to get a Heroku app and we just did the deploy like dozens and dozens of, does this work? Does this work? Does this work? <laughs> oh. Yeah. It's like setting up CI for the first time and you got test, test this. Nope. Didn't work. Test this. And it feels like a problem to be solved, but it's also like, does it really matter if you create a bunch of commits that fail and you just keep changing things until it works? You were going to probably have to do that locally, but then you'd have to have a copy of that whole process running locally. Right. So there wasn't any real loss there. It just feels annoying when you're doing it because you wish you could just know the result right away instead of having to wait yeah. for it to go build and then fail and retry. And then honestly, it's going to be the same thing you did on Heroku. The only thing is you won't have the Heroku logs command line, right? You'll have to log in your AWS account and you'll have to look at the CloudWatch logs. But that's a change for people, right? And yeah. I shouldn't discount that change management is hard for some. I mean, I know a lot of people use like Paper Trail or some of the other services to kind of like run logs out to another service yeah. for it. But why would you if you already got CloudWatch and it's right there? Or Yeah, and you just reminded me of a hotspot. So with Lambda, once that web request is done, that process is not run anymore. It's frozen, essentially, even though it boots back up in microseconds for the next request. It's essentially frozen. So things are a little bit tricky, like if you're using New Relic or say Rollbar or any type of error reporting, which sort of relies on like a constant process that eventually gets just flushed. Yeah, like any error tracking that might, you have mm -hmm. an error for the request, it puts it in the background queue to be all batched and sent up. So it's not overloading the API with a ton of things. So that's a really interesting thing. I guess there's workarounds of like you could directly make the API request to some of those services. During before, the web request. Yeah, yeah, during the web request before it finishes. We have two solutions. So one, there's another gem I wrote, which is called a Lambda extension. It's called Lambda Punch. Again, it's sort of like after Sucker Punch. And what it does yeah. is, so your web request finishes and then it puts things into memory of that process. And then it, it sends a signal to a file. And then when the Lambda web request is done, it sends a signal back. And then your app just flushes the data out. So like you get the web request, it's kind of like a fancy rack after request or something like that, or after response. The other oh, way is like when we're running our Kubernetes images on AWS Lambda for active job and event-driven architectures, we just basically hook up our active job after complete callback and just tell it to flush the new relic data. So that you can do because like, you know, a job is not like a web request where we can just take the penalty on each job flushing the data out to new relic. Speaking of jobs and stuff, is there a way to set up cron job things that run on a schedule? Mm -hmm. A lines of YAML again. So those are called what are called CloudWatch events. So then those are like Amazon auto triggers those or something, and you mm -hmm. just kind of define the schedule and like cron actually just magically yeah. calls those things and you don't have to know how that works. It's just define and only, it and it's done. Yeah. And the only weird thing is that the Lamby handler it's smart enough to know if it's getting a web request or like a task runner request. You could send a task that says run a database migration, or you could send it a little event that says run this rake task. So if you hook it up to the CloudWatch events, like a cron, then it'll invoke your Lambda for you with a special payload. And then you can either take that on yourself and rewrite your Lambda handler or give it a different handler, which could basically be any constant, right? Because when you load up Ruby, it could just be any long method chain, any function deep down in your app to handle it. Yeah. Or you could let the same handler that the web request is doing. Gotcha. So in a way, it's kind of, just to make the analogy, it's kind of like, you know, your Docker file runs Braille's server by default, but you can override the command and say, hey, let's run a break task. And that's effectively the same thing that's going on there. So it's same image and whatever the default thing is, you can just change it to run. So amazing because like if you look at the handler, which is the command for the Docker image, it's basically config environment and then some sort of constant. So what it does is the Lambda runtime interface client knows to parse that out. It says, okay, I load this file and then I take this method and that method could be foo, colon, colon, bar, whatever handler that you want it to. So 
Oh, it's, cool. It's amazing, right? These tools are built into the Docker, you know, the spec and stuff. And Rails works so well with the runtime interface class for Lambda because it just says, oh, this file, this method. And you've got full control over that. Are there any things, concerns and like, or ways you have to change things for assets or anything? Is that, I guess they would be compiled part of your image and mm-hmm. then serve through your image? Yep. We just, uh, in the starter project, we just turn on that magic environment variable, serve static assets. But if you're a little bigger and you need something else, then by all means, this gets back into the sort of CI, CD pipeline creation. You could hook it up to where once you compile your assets, you could S3 copy those to an S3 bucket that has access like an asset host and then just mm-hmm. remove them before they get added to the Docker image. Yeah, I was going to say like running through Rails to serve the static files is why if you're deploying to your own server, you put Nginx in front and you have it skip the yeah. whole Rails stuff. But you're already in AWS, so you can put CloudFront in front. Okay. And you could have it go directly to the image and serve the file for the first time. It'll be slow or slower, but it won't be that slow. But you can also upload them directly to S3 and have CloudFront point to either location. And Mm -hmm. that way you don't have to manage the S3 bucket unless you need to. But you've really got CloudFront being this wonderful proxy that says, I don't care where your assets are, but... The client always will see the right thing. And that's awesome. I really like all of that. I've been experimenting. We're hosting videos on GoRails on Wistia right now. And that was convenient forever. But they're like, your grandfathered plan is going away and we're going to double your price this past week. And I was like, ugh. So I've been looking at alternative places to host the videos and stuff. And Bunny CDN has similar to uploading things to S3 and CloudFront. They're a CDN that have some storage stuff like that too, but they also have a video player that you can include with that. So we're going to like move stuff over to that. But it got me thinking about, we've got all of our assets for GoRails that run through CloudFront. And I might just like, if I'm going to put all my videos over there, I might also put all of our CDN stuff for GoRails assets over there too. We don't have very many upload things. No, we don't even have uploads for avatars. I think it's just for like the series thumbnails or something. So we have very few like file uploads. So I was like, pretty sure we upload those directly to the server right now and just keep it simple. No S3 bucket, Mm -hmm. but still serving it with a CDN in front makes a big difference. That's, I think, a, I think for smaller Rails apps, people still don't take enough advantage of using a CDN. When you boot up your Rails app and run it in production for the first time, you probably should just toss the CDN in front because it's going to be really great. And it costs you pennies, especially if you use Bunny. I think their whole goal is to be as cheap as possible. But AWS's CDN is very cheap. S3 Mm -hmm. is very cheap too. It just feels to me like a underused piece of rails that slap the asset host on there you tell it hey go talk to my rails app whenever you don't have the file for the first request and then cache it and you're good to go yeah probably true is a underused feature in rails control yes (laughs) yes are there any other lambda things you want to talk about before we finish the episode i'm trying to think of any other questions i have andrew do you have any The problem I'm having is that Ken is making me look back on my time spent with Docker with very rose-colored glasses. And I know when I think back to that traumatic time, it wasn't as great as I'm now thinking like, oh, yeah, there was all this great stuff you could do with Docker. It was banging. I'm like, no, it wasn't like that the whole time. I want to try it again. I was very interested in when it first came out. And then when people who are listening to the show know that I just recently created and did a serverless Ruby function, which on Vercel, which uses AWS Lambda behind the scenes. So if anything, I'm in like the perfect place to just go ahead and try Lambda now that I've built a proxy one, basically. How different is development from production when you're using this? I got a great that would, answer for this. That has been, I feel like, traditionally very different. So I would love to hear that. This is another hour podcast. But I am in love with Microsoft's development container specification, which backs 
VS Code Remote, and we now colloquially known as Code Spaces. You can run Code Spaces locally. It's been out for three years now. You know, even though Code Spaces have been out for about a year. Again, package this inside of the Lambda starter. And I've been around the Rails block a long time to know that like, I'm sick of like, this works on my Mac. This doesn't work over here. And GitHub has been through this pain. This is why they made Code Spaces. So I include a development container, a dot development container folder in the Lambda starter. And it's the exact same image. It's different, right? Because you, I try to recommend good practices. In some cases, you may not want to ship GCC to production. And you may not want to ship all the build tools and Node and everything too. So the development container is the exact same thing as the base image as the container that goes to production. Whether you use code spaces or whether you open up that Rails project and VS Code open folder and development container and it will build your container, you will be in the same environment. So like once you say, hey, I need something that's a little bit off base here. I'm installing a new gem. You just add your app git to the development container Docker file and add it to the production one and you're good to go. Because it's just Docker and it's so rosy. <laughs> it is so rosy. I'll give you that. We have a old episode we'll put in the show notes with Benjamin Wood talking about GitHub code spaces. So yeah. I'm a fan. And Again, I go a step further. Rose. If you look at the CI CD pipeline files that I include for GitHub as well as Circle CI, I actually use the development container for the test and build and deploy. So nice. in the development container, I'll install AWS CLI. So then you have some really cool things, right? You could say, well, I can lock my AWS CLI version both in development and the CI CD pipeline right within this Docker file. And it's consistent, right? So it kind of makes CI CD, the service, sort of commoditized at this point. Because if you're really just running Docker files at the end of the day, then for the first time, I think in our careers, right, we're finally getting line of sight of like, okay, containers were a good idea. We thought of them as production, but the value chain is pushing backwards now. It's pushing backwards into CICD and it's pushing further backwards into development. And I think there's huge opportunity there. Yeah, that was always the dream. And boy, has it been a hard battle to get there. But once into my all nightmare. of that is, yeah. And Rail 7 and stuff is going to ship with Docker files by default. And then I don't know what the state of things, I haven't tried it yet, but have you seen DHH's Mersk project? That's, oh, is that the nickname for the, the funny stuff? The, it's the, the deployment. It's like, yeah, it'll set up traffic and run your application image on the server and like auto change it out when you deploy a new version or whatever. I don't know the state of things yet, but it's been interesting to watch. It got its own domain now, so it's like its own hot wire, an additional thing, and we'll see what comes of it. Hopefully, makes... Like, is that a little open shift or something? I'll put the link in the show notes for it. Right now, it's a very classy website with an image and no CSS. Oh, it's like it was made on mid-journey. I love it. <laughs> going to be something here. He's been working on this pretty actively for the past few weeks. So it's kind of cool cook. to see. Let him but... cook. <laughs> Bless his heart. So I think it's interesting. We'll have this as a way to kind of just deploy with Docker images to bare VPSs more or less. Really? Pretty much. I think they only just need Docker running on it because then that'll spin up a traffic and stuff. But it's a small project. Like, there's not a lot to the code and stuff in there, which is neat, but it won't be a very far jump for you to go from Rails now to running on Lambda or running on your own servers with Docker. So, yeah, it's nice to see this because everybody's complained about deployment with Rails other than Heroku for as long as I can remember. And then Heroku sort of decided to implode a bit or whatever and everybody kind of got sent running and now lambda and everything else are going to be a very good options because i don't know it seems to me like the ideal thing you just slap it on lambda and then hopefully don't have to worry much about scaling things i'm sure maybe that's a great question are there scaling things you still have to worry about as you're building your application design decisions of is it the magical scaling auto scaling thing that it sounds like or it is i guess it is having <laughs> having spent a lot of time scaling kubernetes i'm not saying don't use kubernetes i'm saying like uh 
I really definitely like definitely don't use Kubernetes. Yeah. Say, I, I, have you ever tried scaling Kubernetes? <laughs> right, like you have to sit there and do like gymnastics. You have to go, well, I'm going to do Puma, and Puma is going to be this many workers and this many threads, and that's going to exercise a certain amount of CPU. And then you're like, yeah. well, wait a minute, that's hard. Let me do request based queuing. So let's hook up this to this to this. And at the end of the day, you're probably just built Fly.io with Firecracker. Yeah. The whole beauty of what you've got in Lambda is it feels like you are handling individual requests and there's not worrying about concurrency for the most part. Here's the request. When it's done, it's done. And other ones happen independently and voila. But otherwise, you do have to worry about, I've got these resources. How do I maximize the CPU that I've got? For the CPUs, ensure that we've got the right number of workers and concurrency for Sidekick and whatever else. But that seems to all kind of go away. And you're thinking more single-threaded minded again, where Which that's, is really I the guess, shared the value. architecture we were kind of promised, right? That's what I like. Yeah. Yeah, because you really get back to that, like, oh, that whole rat's nest of concurrency that is pretty painful to deal with. Toss it out the window. Don't worry about it anymore. That's exciting that is really cool now you got me uh, wanting to spend my weekend fiddling with lambda no. so here we go and <laughs> i had plans <laughs> i was gonna do things there was a plan there were objectives it's all gone it's all done <laughs> yes <laughs> chaotic well, good cool. over here. are there any other things you want to share before we go like anything's on custom ink are you guys hiring or lambi things or anything at all follow me on twitter if you're uh, interested in custom ink we're always hiring at some point do try out lambda right give it a shot by the time this show comes out we'll have the arm stuff in we'll have the circle ci stuff on how to build that get an app up and running check it out apply it if you really like this stuff i could use some contributors to help write the guides and sort of push some of this stuff forward but yeah stay curious and play with this stuff and just remember, too, whenever I advocate for something, I'm not advocating for one way versus another, right? We need lots of different technologies. There's lots of different use cases. By no means is Custom Ink running everything on Lambda, but I think it's a great fit for a lot of things. Are there any things you don't think it would be a good fit for? If you need more <laughs> than 60 seconds for a web request, probably it's not Oh, be. interesting. Because it can run for 30 minutes, but you can't run it for 30 minutes behind a web request. I wonder how many times are people doing that? That seems like a bad design. Like... On purpose or accidentally? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. That's the question. Oh, that's, no, that's the 60 seconds you're waiting for Kubernetes to scale. That's the good ones. <laughs> Here's the thing that'll happen. Once you have any workload in Lambda and you start to grok it and get it, and Rails could be an important part of that, the world sort of opens up on how you achieve work. There were times where we've had to push finally past like active storage or our carrier wave. You know, so right now a lot of our Rails apps just put things on the S3 and then we have microservices that are hooked up that do the reads. And we had to do a large migration. And we did what we computed was like 27 days of EC2 work if we were having to hook this up to our database and migrate these things in S3 bucket. And we just hooked them up to land, throw them into an SQS queue. And if your Rails app can get hooked up to that power of concurrency, then you just start thinking of problems differently, right? You don't think of like let me console in and run this thing and maybe do a screen and keep it running for a while. You just define the unit of work, fill the queue up and just let it go. Yeah, that is awesome. You reminded me that one of my good friends in town here works for Bayer and he does a lot of genomics pipeline stuff for mm -hmm. them. He was telling me one time that he just spent up 420,000 CPUs to do <laughs> some backfilling work and stuff. Cause they're casually, I'm sure they're really big on Google cloud. Cause they're like, it became down to the like, oh, Google Cloud would be like a cent, but AWS would be like a cent and a half. And it didn't matter a whole lot for most people. But when you're doing 420,000 CPUs for hours and hours of work, then like it starts to add up pretty fast. And, and they were also kind of curious too, because they use Kubernetes, but use it not for web stuff. So they have like long running genomics processing stuff mm -hmm. that they're doing, which is actually a very different workload than the short requests right. for all the web stuff. So they were digging into all the weeds on Kubernetes scaling and stuff. And yeah, it's just like awesome to think of projects at that scale. My stuff's all very tiny in comparison, but it's always one where like, 
I'd love to plan and build things that I'm doing for that scale and just like practice that on every project. So mm-hmm. Lambie is the way to go. All right. Well, I guess that's it for this episode. Unless you guys have anything last minute. No, I'm enjoying Andrew, Oliver, Chris. It's yeah. been great seeing yeah. you guys. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. This was a lot of fun. And now I've got way too much documentation to go read and lots of YAML to write, it sounds like, or learn. Not lots. Not lots. Yeah. Very specific about that. Not lots. Not lots. Not lots. But lots of AWS terminology to learn. That's what it yeah, really yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. That's it. We'll Thank see you, you next week. Peace. <laughs>